0: So how was it for you today to be here, in some ways a new beginning, 2014, in some ways it seems we continue to flow on from day to day, from moment to moment. And yet there's something that we notice about this movement of time, this movement in time. In some ways time is just a concept. And in yet we, in another way we see clearly that there's a journey taking place. And we can mark to a certain degree the reality of that journey in the experience of our body. We've spoken in different ways about using the body as a ground, as a reference point. I'd like to offer some further reflections this evening on the, we could say, the Dharma of the body, the wisdom of the body. Sometimes I entitle the talk Bodhidharma. Somehow that Seems to amuse me. (laughs) So we're invited in this meditation practice to notice. It's kind of obvious really, but invited to notice that we have a body. To give attention to this that we call body. And that as we've mentioned, the Buddha spoke of as the first foundation of mindfulness the first place in a way to give attention. The central reference point. And we probably start to notice as we pay attention to our body that we begin with a relationship to body often that's primarily informed or made up of ideas, of labels, of concepts, of language that describes perhaps the shape, or the size, or the texture, or the colour, or the particular advantages or limitations of our particular body. We have lots of ideas about all these things, and often we relate to the body through the concepts, through the ideas, through the images that we carry, that we hold, that We may have come up with ourselves, or we may equally have uh, received from others who had something to say about this body or another body, your body or someone else's body. There can be a lot of suffering associated with the body when we relate to it through images, through concepts, and concepts often referenced with some degree of value being extended or withheld in relationship to those concepts we can have a sense of not enough of this or too much of that very easily in relationship to body and yet here the invitation is to look a little more deeply in all realms of our our experience in fact the invitation is to look a little more deeply to see beyond the concepts, the associations. And so this journey that we're engaged in over the retreat is very much one in which our direct experience of body is very much at the centre of what we're orienting towards, what we're engaging with. And one of the fundamental realities of what it means to have a body to be embodied is that this body is subject to conditions. Particularly and specifically this body is subject to aging. Having been born it grows. As it grows it begins to age. As it ages it sometimes sickens and ultimately this body dies. We know that. It's nothing new being spoken of here. And yet, the concepts, ideas we may or may not engage with, relate to or feel to be significant and meaningful. We may struggle with the reality of aging, of sickness, of the inevitability of death. We may accept the ideas and yet sometimes we need to get a little closer to what this really means to allow it to touch us and uh, a few years ago at the retreat center in England Gaia House uh, to which I erroneously welcomed you at the beginning of the <laughs> retreat we were offered by a a yogi and practitioner of some years who'd recently completed their medical training we were offered a skeleton And it's really interesting to be offered a skeleton, a real one. A lot of people weren't sure this was a good idea because it might be a little scary or unsettling to have one of those hanging around. And yet in the monasteries in Asia, it's a very common thing. In fact, sometimes the monks and the nuns will offer their skeleton to the monastery to be put on display after their death. So we can kind of see that, hmm, this body... Those bodies, yeah, there's a skeleton in here already. This is, there's actually lots of skeletons at IMS, interestingly, isn't it? <laughs> we don't notice them, perhaps, because they've been wrapped up carefully in tissue, living tissue. And then we actually wrap that tissue up in some kind of other kinds of tissue. Then we wrap these tissues up in tissue paper, which is, you know, when you buy it, it's wrapped in tissue paper. When you unpack it, this is a new shirt, as someone pointed out, that's still apparent... Because of the, <laughs> the crinkles on it. When a baby comes out of the womb, it's often got a few crinkles on it too. We wrap it in something soft. When an elderly person is heading towards their last days, probably there's a few crinkles there as well. So what is it to contemplate this human body? This skeleton dressed in flesh and fabric? What we can notice, one of the things that we can see and that we find ourselves perhaps reflecting on certainly in the group meetings it's a a topic that arises not infrequently is the the experience of fear, the experience of anxiety, the, the experience of our looking at life and seeing that in fact we are vulnerable. The survival of this body is something deeply important to us and yet ultimately it's not just that it isn't guaranteed to survive, it's guaranteed <coughs> to not survive ultimately. This is not an easy thing for a human being to really (coughs) contemplate, to know. And of course, we're wired up deeply and importantly in order to preserve and take care of this body so far as we can for the time that it is useful and functional. We want it to survive. And yet, the mechanisms that biologically have evolved for us, we find have become kind of somehow embedded in a way that plays out not so usefully. We notice how, and we've talked some about the tendency to contract in the body. Contraction in the body is a protective mechanism, often based in fear, the encounter with either danger or pain. And we contract, and it's a a bodily thing. It's kind of useful to contemplate the, the, the kind of animal intelligence of our body. I think there's that expression we have, or you have, I guess, in America of playing possum. The American opossum. The Australian opossum doesn't do this. But the American opossum, when threatened, you know, just uh, curls up. and Pretends to be dead because its major predators won't eat a dead thing. Which is a kind of useful approach to life in a certain way mostly it works it's not so good if this particular predator turns out to be interested nonetheless because uh once you've curled up and pretended to be dead you're kind of available really aren't you and so too what happens for us sometimes we do this kind of tightening it's like we freeze like if i don't move and internally we tighten up as if then we'll be safe we might also know that it doesn't work, but it's interesting to feel how the body tightens, and we might feel like, "Well, why am I still having to kind of work with this tightness, these contractions?" We say, oh, this is this is the this is the animal body doing what it does." We can also notice sometimes the the sometimes we tighten. It's the the sort of the the fear responses to contract. The other response is to puff up to make ourselves look bigger, more threatening, and there's a a fish, in the, um, I think it's a, a Pacific Ocean fish. You may have it on the, uh, the west coast of this country, I don't know. But in New Zealand, it's a fish called the puffer fish. And what it does when it threatens, it puffs up. And it's a lot bigger than it would normally be. So as to scare away the kind of predator that might have thought this is a nice little fish and then suddenly, bloop, it's quite a large fish. It's a kind of useful strategy. Unless, of course, the fish is large enough to think this still looks interesting. And then, no, it's in trouble. You notice when we get some kind of a fright, or feel threatened, the back of the neck tingles? Have you seen a cat after it got frightened? and goes twice the size. Our body is trying to do the same thing. When we get scared, it's trying to get bigger. Often what happens with anger is that we're kind of trying to puff ourselves up. We get angry, we get kind of righteous, we kind of get bigger than we were. Have you ever noticed that phenomena it 's like there 's a sense of certainty to anger that gives some sense of confidence as if we can scare something off and it 's interesting to notice how it 's a very bodily phenomena and yet it has a psychological correlate that goes with it we 're very interesting animals I was just out now um, as I often do in the evening go for a run and uh, I'm still kind of hot from the running, even though it was pretty cold out there. I was well-dressed, and very uh, interestingly, at one point, as I was coming down the, sort of heading towards the, I guess, the bit of Pleasant Street where Barry begins and Petersham ends, a uh, half a mile or a mile that way, some, sound like a young male voice, probably teenage, early 20s, came out of the house and started saying, I was running, I had my lights off because there was enough light to see, Um, and there weren't any vehicles, and this voice came out and said, there's an animal out there. I thought, no, there's not, it's me. And he said, there's an animal out there. And I thought, he's right. (laughs) (coughs) So we can see this kind of tendency, this kind of activity as a human being, where we kind of sometimes puff ourselves up, sometimes we shrink ourselves down. And getting to know, getting to feel what that's like, what that experience is for us. We have the opportunity here. We've spoken about it in different ways. With the experience of fear, with the experience of anger, with those movements that are pushing away on our experience, what's important to understand when we encounter them, seeing perhaps hopefully, clearly, that they're not so useful, they're generally not so skillful, that they're patterns that are really intended for a different kind of circumstance than what we are often reacting to, which is more to do with ideas and concepts and memories of things that may have been difficult, rather than actual direct threats or danger. If there are actual threats or danger, then of course it's important to take appropriate steps to uh, move away. Or to protect oneself. But underneath that movement there's a caring for our well-being. Underneath the pushing away or the withdrawing, there's an attempt to take care of our well-being. And ultimately everything that moves within us is coming from this attempt to take care of that which we care for. However... Narrowly or broadly, we understand and relate to that which it is that we care for. And it can be quite narrow and it can be vast, the sense of our caring and what it is directed towards. So noticing the experience of fear, the experience of anger, and what it's like for us to be impacted, to be touched by it, to not act it out, and yet to feel the energy that's the life force and vitality of the human animal, expressing itself, and seeing, "Oh yeah, we can make room for this, we can contain this, or we can allow this to move." And yet, watching what happens with our mind with fear, it's so strong, it's so quick, it's so powerful, how we move from the moment of discomfort in the body to, oh, you know, the twinge in the knee. And it just takes a few flickers of mental activity before we're imagining the ambulance pulling up at IMS. And we're being taken to the hospital, sirens, screening for the amputation. And the rest (laughs) of our life, you know, one-legged. And so, of course, it's pretty scary that my knee hurts. Because if it's going to go that way, then probably, yeah, I need to do something about it. But the truth is actually mostly... 99.9% of the time, it isn't going to go that way. But the fear pushes us so quickly to respond. And that experience itself is really deeply painful. I remember having become very ill when travelling in in Asia, in India in fact, and being carried like a a sack of potatoes to a hospital and dumped on a bed by a kind fellow traveller and waiting for them to tell me what was wrong, but not having really much idea, but the doctor came and said, well, after some tests and things, you know, we're not quite sure. It looks like you might have malaria and hepatitis and something else perhaps. And, and there was this moment where I just thought, that's it, I'm going to die. That's it. That... Now, actually it turned out I had hepatitis. That was enough, as it happened. But um, what was significant was this moment of just terror, absolute terror for my existence from a word. I actually didn't really know what hepatitis was or malaria. Certainly never had either before. But somehow the idea, this is the end. And the energy, the fear that can drive us in such situations can be incredible. But what's interesting is, that, that experience in itself is not dangerous to us. The experience of fear is in itself not dangerous to us. But it's really, really, really <laughs> uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. And what tends to happen is when it arises, we move up into the mind, looking at the scenario, trying to figure out how can I avoid the thing that I think is going to happen or that I'm afraid will happen because that's what I think I'm afraid of, the thing that's going to happen. But that thing isn't happening. What's happening is fear right here. Because when the thing's happening, we deal with it. We either survive or annihilate it. And either way, it's all over. Really, it's dealt with and we've survived, or... We've been annihilated, and there we are. At least the fear's gone. <laughs> so there's this movement of powerful energy. Sometimes it's not so intense as what I was just describing, and it's more the subtle levels of anxiety that arise, and that kind of it's almost like sort of in a kind of corrosive way, sort of seem to sap or feed on the 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 energy and the vitality of our heart and our our well-being, that just sort of, oh, what about this, and if that, and oh, I don't know about... And we spend so much time trying to anticipate and figure out what's going to happen in order to protect ourselves, because we care about ourselves. We care about this life. And yet so often, how many times, in fact, has it been that those things we were concerned about never came to pass. Or having come to pass turned out to be not actually as insurmountable as we'd imagined they might be. How many times has that happened for us? You know Mark Twain once said, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. But the fear of them, that's the worst experience sometimes. And so, What's useful and what's important is to recognize that this is fear. And this experience has a story associated with it going into the future. That's trying to figure out, anticipate and deal with what's going to happen. Or in fact what might happen. Because it's not going to happen. Nothing is for sure in the future. That's one thing perhaps we learn here. But the experience is happening right here. And we engage with the story Because we don't want to feel the experience because it's unpleasant. Because fear is unpleasant. That's its job, is to be unpleasant. It has another job, we'll get to that. But the first job is to be unpleasant. And if we're not willing to feel that, we move away from it, out of the body, into the thinking about what I can do to get rid of the fear. But you know, even if we resolve that and deal with that scenario, the fear is still here. And it'll just find something else to be afraid of. Because we haven't actually resolved what's real. And what's real is always here. There's nothing that's real anywhere else. Because there isn't anywhere else. There isn't somewhere in the future. There's only here. And so getting real with the experience says, oh, actually this feels in my body right now, like this, and it's clenching in the chest or sort of squirming in the belly or it's vibrating through the whole of the body. And it feels tight or cold or hot or however it feels for you because it can feel in any number of ways. But that's real. That's here. And if we can meet that, then we don't need to move out into the future. We don't need to get lost. We don't need to become disconnected from where we are. Because the real power and the real suffering in fear, the power it has, is that it disconnects us. Or in fact, it doesn't disconnect us. We disconnect out of the unwillingness to feel it and become lost in the story about the scenario of what might happen and how bad it will be when it happens and how the fact is I really don't want that to happen. Which, of course, we might not. That might be quite reasonable and understandable. But coming right back to where we are. Can we feel the sensations of the fear? To notice, yeah, they're not pleasant, but they're not dangerous. It's very interesting to get the distinction clear. They're not dangerous to us. Unless they drive us to do something, because we're not willing to feel them, then they're dangerous. But that's not the sensation. That's what we've done to try and avoid it. If we can open to this with sensitivity, if we can start to make friends with this, we can start to find a freedom in the midst of fear. And fear is going to be with us, because while we have a body, there's going to be vulnerability. There's no other way around it. This body is subject to being impacted by life in so many ways. And There's an interesting thing that comes with this quality of fear when we actually turn towards it in the present moment, what it actually brings. When we come into the present, what's essential and what's real about it is that it's saying, be attentive. Be alert. Really look at what's happening right here. And check, is there danger? Is there danger? We need to check. Is there danger here? And when we have some awareness of, when we open to that aspect of what's going on, something really interesting happens. And I can kind of perhaps illustrate a little bit with a story that probably have told a few times, so some of you might have heard. Pretend you haven't heard it before. Better that way. Maybe not. Um, but when I was uh, still living in New Zealand before sort of I began what I guess I would call my sort of journey in the world of spiritual exploration. I was with some friends doing a, a winter crossing of the, uh, an alpine pass in the Southern Alps and we had to cross a frozen lake because the normal path went underneath a bluff which in winter you couldn't go under because it was just an avalanche trap and uh, it was unsafe. So you had to go out across a frozen lake. And so we went out across this lake in every step just checking with the ice axe, as one does. And I was for some reason in front um then checking every step, thinking, okay, this ice is pretty solid, this is pretty good. Hundred meters, hundred yards out into the lake, thinking, oh this is good, fine, we're okay. Whew. And uh sort of checking every second step, 150 yards out, every third step. Right out in the middle of the lake, probably yeah, 180 yards out from this edge and pretty close to the middle of the lake. Suddenly I went through the ice. Bang, it cracked, and I just went straight through. I was carrying quite a large heavy backpack out in the mountains for a few days with all our equipment and supplies. Whew, straight through. Fear. Body. Rah! Really intense. Fortunately, incredibly fortunately. You can tell the story ends happily, I'm here. So. <laughs> it's a very deep lake. It's a long way. It's two or three days walk from the nearest human being, unless there's someone else out there tramping, as we call it, walking. Um... I just only went through to here. I caught with my arms, my axe, and my backpack hitting the surface of the ice, so I didn't go under. I was really fortunate because I don't know what would have happened if I did. But I realised I could actually leave myself out, and I did, and said to my friends, "You know, just be careful here." Yeah? <laughs> they probably got that, but they carefully walked over not too close, the place where I'd gone through. We continued. And you know, every single... I I, I checked every step with my ice axe from there. It was as far to go forward as back, so we just decided to keep going. Every time I put my foot on the ice, there was a little bit of snow on it. I was so mindful. I'd never heard of mindfulness. No one had ever taught me anything about paying attention. But I realised that I didn't know for sure what was under my feet. And so there'd be a little, as the soft snow on the ice collapsed under the foot and the weight of the body. And this moment of, as the solid ice held my weight. And we continued on our way and made it safely to our um, next, uh, the hut we were staying in that night. And we did figure out eventually that there was a stream running in to the, to the lake and it was running really swiftly. And it was cutting a fissure in the ice right out through the middle of the lake. So there was this little bit of ice that was thin, just a line. When we looked on the map and saw, oh, there's a, you couldn't see the stream because it was covered in snow on the top, but it was running into the lake. And there was a line, a fissure. But when we're aware of our vulnerability, when we're in touch with the sensitivity of the human organism, it naturally wants to pay attention. It naturally wants to feel what's under my feet. Now it's a bit cold for this outside at this time of year in New England but walking barefoot outside, naturally I'm not suggesting doing it, you could lose your skin out there I imagine (laughs) it's pretty cold, but at times when it's not so cold it's very natural to pay attention, to be present in the taking of a step with a foot that isn't protected with a layer of leather and rubber and just onto the earth with stones and twigs and whatever else we might find underfoot. It's a very natural thing. It's only become something we have to relearn because we've isolated and insulated ourselves from the need for appropriate caution in relationship to activity. So the sensitivity that we're developing, although it might seem like it's a little problematic, and someone observed in a, in a meeting um, a couple of days ago that you know, I'm not sure about all the sensitivity. Getting more sensitive is a bit of a problem. In one sense that might be true, but in another sense, or in another way of looking at it, that sensitivity calls us naturally to be attentive, to be present. It's not because it's a good idea or because the Buddha said so. It's because our whole system tells us this is what you want to do in the circumstance of what it is to have a body. Or else the body gets hurt. I mean, When kids are young, they don't mind about the body getting hurt because it's young and it's fresh and it rebuilds itself really quickly when you bruise it or break it or bump it or cut it. Your body gets a few years older. It takes a while to come right from those things. and At a certain age, it just doesn't. It just doesn't. So we get more careful, more cautious. And there's something okay about that. But what this represents for us from the point of view of the mind, which is what we're looking at in terms of the freeing of the heart and the mind, is that we see that this body is subject to conditions beyond our control. This process of aging, this vulnerability and sensitivity. It's not arising in any way that we can determine how it will be, absolutely. We can experience great pleasure and incredible pain in this body. And there's a way in which, from a kind of an intellect point of view, from the point of view of that self-referenced sort of central idea of me that wants to be in control, this is a really scary thing be walking around in. There's, it's kind of hard to trust that this is going to be okay because it's not in our control. And a lot of what we've created and constructed in our lives is an attempt or a way to try and establish a sort of a facsimile of some degree of control or moderation of that reality. Or we say moderation, modulation, to be able to somehow control or or influence the degree of the intensity, to modulate the intensity of this sensitivity, vulnerability, this body, this body. And because we can't control the experiences arising in it, very oftenly in the, in the, in the fear and the distrust that that engenders, we tend to start to disinhabit it. We tend to move up into the mind. We tend to live more and more in our heads. You know that great line from the um, James Joyce book, you know, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. I haven't read that book either, actually. But <laughs> I hear all these great quotes. So I feel like it's all right. And interestingly, it's really painful to not be in our body. There's actually a real distress in it. Even though in a some way we're escaping from the uncomfortableness, the uncertainty and the being subject to unpredictable experiences that goes on in here all the time, as if it's somehow a refuge to not be in touch with it, to be more in the realm of concepts and ideas, actually it's really uncomfortable. It's really, there's something deeply painful to us in that experience. Which is why at some level we also then come here realizing we want to get out of our head. Of course getting out of our head means getting into our body. There isn't somewhere else. That's a significant part of what we've been engaged in here. And yet what's interesting is that as we start to find a way to be in the body where we can make space for the fact that it's sometimes painful, uncomfortable, sometimes it's a bit scary or out of control or unpredictable, that actually as the system starts to open, as we start to relax and allow ourselves to inhabit this, this embodied experience, there's something deeply pleasurable about it. There's something very simple and yet very sweet about just the knowing of the body in the body. Which is how the Buddha suggested we should know it. To know the body in the body. Not thinking about the body, looking at the body, or measuring it, evaluating it, comparing it in all the ways we maybe do. But actually in the body it's like this. Huh. And actually it's something soft. It's something quite Remarkable. And there can be something deeply and profoundly healing for us that takes place in just letting the mind, the heart mind, the chitta, as we've spoken about, allowing it to soak into the body, to steep the body, to become unified with the body. So when we talk about the mindfulness of breathing, it's like we're bringing the mind fully into the body. And we're allowing it to soak in the body. It's in fact the natural element for this consciousness to soak in, to rest in, to be supported by. And to the degree that it's not, there's a real loss there. And we need to learn to listen to this body. It has so much wisdom. One of the great tragedies of our culture is the conceit that has taken hold of... Of so many of, if not, I don't know how to say this, the conceit that's really taken hold of the way we look at things that suggests it's through our minds we will resolve what it is that needs to be resolved. When we actually see it's through our minds we got to the place of all these things that need resolving, there's a wisdom to this body. And one of the things that it's hardest for us to understand, perhaps, is why does it hurt? Why does it have pain? You know, why did God set it up that way, as sometimes people say? Why has life got difficult things in it? Because this is a big part of our relationship to the body, is that at some level we look at it and think, well, it's great, how lovely. Of course, I want one of those, I need one of those, but could it just please not hurt? Really? at a simple level. That's what we're often so concerned about. And yet, if we bring kindness to the simple human experience of body with pain, if we bring space to it, if we bring curiosity and interest to it, we see that we actually have something to learn about this. Sometimes we need to back off, sometimes we need to come a little closer. We've spoken a little bit about finding a way to be close so we're in contact with but not putting it under pressure when something's difficult, challenging or painful. And to see that it has a message for us. It has a message for us. Any experience, certainly any uncomfortable, difficult or painful experience has a message for us, something important. When I was... uh, In India, I think it actually—no, it wasn't the same trip. So, another time when I was travelling in India, I had the opportunity to visit a um, and to volunteer at a street clinic run by an organisation called Calcutta Rescue. And uh, I was spending some time in Calcutta. My grandmother is Bengali, and I was visiting her for the first time. It was very lovely. And during the day, I would go and volunteer for this uh, with this street clinic. Where um, a number of Westerners, doctors and nurses, had uh, just they would just go down into this particular place in the streets among incredibly poor and deprived, um, sort of and really poverty and disease stricken people who lived in the slums of Calcutta, and offer them medical treatments. And they also had room for some totally unskilled and clueless uh, young people like myself who could just help out with things. I was had no medical skills, but one of the things I learned from one of the one of the people there because one of the treatments being offered was for lepers to treat them and as these incredibly um in a way I want to say pitiful but it was really heartrending. They're not pitiful, they're actually also quite beautiful beings. But something heartrending about seeing these people who've lost significant pieces of their body to this disease. And yet I was incredibly struck to discover that leprosy actually doesn't bring a doesn't actually Um, make bits of your body drop off, the way I thought it did. Leprosy kills the nervous tissue, so you can't feel anything. So, when you're poor, illiterate, uneducated, don't really know anything about personal hygiene, and you cut yourself, or you burn yourself, and it doesn't hurt, you don't do anything about it, and it gets infected. You don't feel anything, so you don't do anything about it. And it starts to rot. And you don't feel anything, so you don't do anything about it. And it falls off. And that's actually the condition for a leper. And the thing, and this is what got me the thing that would make the most difference, that would most transform the life of those people, would be to be able to feel pain. Because what pain is saying to us, really clearly, is pay attention here. And it does it with remarkable efficiency. But because it hurts, we don't like it and we don't want to pay attention here. But if we do, something very different begins to happen. Something very different begins to open up. And so, in this practice, sometimes it's, you know, can have a reputation for being a bit grim or tough or perhaps even masochistic, you know, or um, sadistic or something, you know, all those sort of, you know, why would you sit in one place when it hurts when you could get up? (laughs) Really, why would you do that? (laughs) Yeah? Well... Of course we need to check and see if there's actually some harm that could be caused and I think I mentioned earlier a couple of days ago about that checking to see if when you change your posture it goes away pretty quickly it's probably okay that's been my experience if you change your posture and the pain remains for or seems to be building getting worse continues for some time after you've moved maybe better to change your posture earlier but that Experience of paying attention to, of learning from, paying attention here. This is something that opens us up. It opens the heart to actually allow ourselves to feel. Because that's why that is there. So we can feel, so we can pay attention and see, is there danger here? Is there danger here? And you know, of course we could just adjust and move away from the pain. Even if it's not doing us any harm, why bother feeling discomfort? There's no one here saying, certainly not me, that, you know, more pain or no pain, no gain. That's not true. But the truth is also that probably we will all at times encounter a pain or a difficult, unpleasant, challenging experience in our body that we can't adjust our way out of, that we haven't got that option. And what are we going to do when we come to that place? if we've never practiced and learned the capacity to say, okay, yeah, it's not easy, but actually I can meet this. I can meet this. So what happens in trying to avoid pain is that we become desensitized by withdrawing from the experience of our sensitivity, we lose it. And in the loss of our sensitivity is the loss of our connectedness. Because the sensitivity that we experience is the interface between what we call me and what we call everything else. Between what's going on over here and what's going on everywhere else. The sensitivity is the interface. If we don't inhabit the interface, we actually start to experience the sense of isolation, the sense of disconnection. And that disconnection is actually much more painful. In our heart, in the depth and core of our being, that is much more painful to us than the, the rub of our human sensitivity being worked in contact with life. The loss of connection is the deeper suffering. And yet, what that says is that we have to risk or take the risk to allow ourselves to feel and to feel deeply. This practice of meditation quite naturally, inevitably begins to dissolve that disconnection. Partly by the willingness we bring to feel our sensitivity, to be affected, to allow ourselves to be affected by the sensitivity. And that's not easy for us. It's not easy at all. Teaching here. At IMS one summer, uh, several years ago, I was walking in the the woods towards Gaston Pond out there. And as I was walking, uh, suddenly in front of me, I guess two yards in front of me, I saw a really large snake crossing the path. And I stopped dead still. (laughs) And I looked at it fascinated. We don't have snakes in New Zealand. Hardly any in England where I live now. And snake, it's like snake, wow, snake, like snake, scary, snake, wow, scary, wow. Um, And then I noticed it wasn't moving. hmm, hmm, Okay, courage. (laughs) Took another step towards it, hmm, still not moving, wow, snake. Then it was all wow and no fear, it's like wow, 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 very mindfully. Walked over to, huh, it's a snake skin. It's no snake, just the skin. And I was, you know, it looked like I was about that big. <laughs> Across the path. And then I thought, the snake had to get out of that. <laughs> and, you know, we know why that is. The snake, in growing, it has to shed its skin every year because it gets too tight. It's like this protective shell that grows around it, limits it from growing. If it doesn't get out of its skin, it will die. And when it gets out of its skin... It's got to come out kind of pink and juicy and soft. Because if it comes out with another skin on just as tough, it's going to be no bigger, is it? it? couldn't be any bigger. It's going to be smaller than the one that was around it. So it's got to come out without one of those things on. And that's going to be scary. And that's going to be a time when you don't want a passing hawk or, I don't know, wolf or probably human being to show up. Wow. Those beings, those creatures, every year they have to do that. They have to get out of their skin. To be unprotected. But in order to survive, they must. In order to actually grow, they must. And our bodies, not so different. We don't have to shed our skin. But we need to shed the layers of protective armoring that we've built around ourselves unconsciously that confine and constrain us from being able to expand. Because in our hearts, expansion, that movement outwards into greater both possibility but equally greater connectedness and intimacy. This is what we long for at a bodily level. This movement of expansion can be felt in the cells, actually. The sense of what it is when we relax is that the tightening, the contractedness, the holding in softens and opens and there's an expansion. So perhaps we can forgive this body for the fact that it experiences things that we find hard to bear. That we can... Just take a moment and express to this body, sometimes with the soft palm of the hand, just, ah, oh, you know, thanks <laughs> for helping keep me alive. And I don't mean alive in just terms of physical aliveness, I mean in terms of the, the deeper aliveness that we're called back to. That our body is a, a conduit, a channel, and a gateway into. And as we do this, as we relax, as we allow this body to open, we begin to see, we begin to recognize the deeper truth that it speaks to us of. This body's nature is of the nature of all things. And yet we relate to it in a way that doesn't quite recognize what's true. So much of the time it seems... We say, my body, a little bit like Pascal's bicycle. It's our body for a while, but not forever. And even right now, if we look can we see, we see it's changing. Are we okay with that? Are we okay that probably for most of us here, our body doesn't quite have the functionality it had five or ten years ago? Maybe there's a few of you who are still on the way up and, you know, bless you, enjoy it. (laughs) Really. (laughs) Why not? But certainly, uh, you know, if you're lucky, you get 20 to 30 years of that. And then it starts to kind of plateau and then it starts (laughs) to slowly go, oh my gosh, yeah, it goes that way from here. Okay. And, you know, can we make peace with that? Can we say, huh? That's okay, because that's how it is. This changing body that we think of as ours. You know, we're not the only inhabitant of this physical organism. We really aren't. Call it mine. The reality, and it's a little bit embarrassing sometimes, a little bit annoying sometimes, but this is a co-housing project. (laughs) really. There are hundreds and thousands and millions of organisms living in this biological system. I think there's about ten cells living cells actually bacterial organisms in the body for every human cell ten to one. That's on a cellular level. If we're talking organisms and we say I'm one if this was a democracy <laughs> we would be so way outvoted on any decision making (laughs) we get to use this body but not forever so we might be grateful for that but you know those little guys they're going to get it in the end they're going to be here when we're gone So maybe we can hold it a little less tightly. Maybe we can just say, oh, okay, hey, I get to use this. How wonderful. It's, <laughs> I bet mean, it's amazing. You see, it bends, straightens, does all these things. Incredible. Actually, that's mostly what it does. It bends and straightens. There's all these different ways of combining bending and straightening that we can do that do all these interesting things. In terms of mindfulness of the body, one of the things to be mindful of is bending and straightening. And it covers almost everything we do, except what's going on through the inside to something else. So we can hold it not so tightly. We can have a sense that maybe this is shared for the well-being of life. That it's not just for me, this thing. And it isn't, of course. It couldn't be. I mean, what is it, after all? If we look at it. Yeah, well. Me. It's obvious, isn't it? So this is it's me, my body. But what do we mean? What are we talking about? What's actually happening here? Biologically, it's a hollow tube. Isn't it? It's a long hollow tube. A bit of the tube's curled up and coiled up in the middle. But basically, if you would stretch it out, it's just a long tube. We put food in one end. We know what happens at the other got these appendages for finding food (laughs) seeing it, looking for it and appendages for getting away from turning to make sure we don't end up as something else's food and this bit to try and figure out which of the two things are going on out there is that food or is that going to make me food (laughs) that's the basic thing going on there's a few more tubes for making more tubes (laughs) It's universal. We all got them. Human beings, other beings. Where does it begin and end, this tube? What's the inside and what's the outside of this tube? I mean, eat food, goes in here. Which bit is the inside? Because inside, the inside is stuff that was on our plate. Is that you? Is that me? I'm not sure. it doesn't sort of look like it, certainly when it comes back up, I think, mm, not me." <laughs> when it goes out the other end, definitely not me. <laughs> so there's a hole down through the middle, and it's got all the stuff from outside going through it. There's this kind of tube wrapped around it. There's all this air going through it. Where's the inside of the body? Where's the outside? If all these outside things are going through the inside. Where do we get the idea that this is over here by itself, when it's full of stuff that came from over there? Where do we get that idea? This comes together for a while. And in that time that it comes together, it offers us this remarkable opportunity. Most of what's essential, it's doing it. Breathing just happens, doesn't it? It doesn't require us to be mindful in order for breathing to happen. Have you noticed? It's really fortunate. Anyone who's spaced out for more than three minutes will be dead. Either that or we'd learn to be mindful of our breathing really quickly, wouldn't we? First thing when you're born... Okay, kid, be mindful of that breathing because if you stop being mindful, it'll stop. But it's not like that. No. Body just breathes. Body just breathes. And it digests and it maintains the temperature so far as it can within a certain range. And there's the circulation and all these incredible things that go on in this body. If we start to see, we don't have to do most of that. The animal intelligence, the organic intelligence takes care of it. Maybe we can relax a bit more about it. Maybe we can just let it be a bit more. And to see that within this body, as the Buddha said, within this fathom-long body, this six-foot, two-yard long body, within this fathom-long body, all of the Dharma is relieved, is revealed. All of the is revealed. The reality of suffering and its cause, the end of suffering and the path thereto. It's all to be known here in this body, this expression of the nature of things. This human body is a shared experience a shared experience of sensitivity, of vulnerability, and of remarkable connectedness. Getting to know what that means in a very direct way, it's worth it. The challenges that are presented along the way turn out to really be okay in light of what we can discover through meeting them. And so this very particular, and in a way we could say limited and finite, expression of life we call body is a gateway, an open doorway to discovering the vastness of life, the vastness of truth. And the very ordinary and yet remarkable freedom of the way things are. When we're not defended against, when we're not controlling what's happening. But we're really here for it. One hundred percent. When we're really here for this, So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to live more fully and deeply in touch with these remarkable bodies. And may we come to know through them and through our expanding hearts and minds, through the opening of our hearts and our lives. May we come to know the vastness of the body of life for our own well-being, for the welfare of all beings. So it's time now for walking, and uh, perhaps if the bell ringer would uh, kindly ring the bell five minutes later than scheduled, we'll have the sitting beginning at five to nine. Please continue with your practice.